If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And the text that we just saw on the screen before us is the text that we're going to dive into and examine on this Palm Sunday. And so uh, maybe you're new and you're like, um, I'm not even sure where Luke is. Well, if you turn to your Bible, your Bible is divided into two sections. One's the Old Testament, which tells you about the nation of Israel. And then there's another section called the New Testament, which out of Israel comes the Messiah. And uh, the New Testament tells you about that person. The name of Jesus uh, is the guy's name, uh, who is the king in which we proclaim. Uh, and you'll find the story of Jesus' life and ministry in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so that's in the New Testament. So if you found Matthew, turn to your right a couple books. Once you land in Luke, we're going to go to chapter 19. The big numbers in your Bible are chapters, and the small numbers are your verses. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 19. And then we're going to pick up in verse 28. Now, while you're turning there, let me just go ahead and give you a quick commercial. Uh, And that is, next week is Easter weekend, and it does not involve uh, things like just normal. So next weekend, we have our community-wide egg hunts on both campuses. Uh, They're actually not on the physical campuses, but in our communities. And so in Wills Point, it's at Lester Park off of 2965. And then in kind of downtown area in Edgewood at the Heritage Park, we're having the egg hunts there. Both are going on the exact same time from 1030 to 1230. There's going to be lots of fun and food and festivities and thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of eggs. Um, And so there's no kid in Van Zandt County that's going to get ripped off. Uh, but certainly encourage you to make plans to be there. Invite a friend's a great opportunity for someone who's not you know, really interested in being a part of church to at least mingle with, with people who are followers of Jesus. And so we certainly encourage you to invite a friend. But one of the things I want to encourage you to do, which I think is the most important, is, is to encourage people to attend our weekend services. There's five services to choose from, two in Edgewood on Sunday morning, two in Wills Point on Sunday morning, as well as a 6 p.m. service in Wills Point next weekend. If you will go to stonepointchurch.com on the front page of our website, you can go and reserve your seat. If you also want to go to uh, stonepointchurch.com forward slash Easter with us, you can get there from the homepage as well. That'll give you all the egg hunt times and it'll also give you the service times. But the key is, if you don't mind, friends, on both campuses, take a few moments today, set your alarm, whatever you need to do, and reserve your seats. That allows us to have fluidity in our services. And our goal is not to have tons of overflow space in one or, or two of our services, but to make sure that we maximize our space. And the way we do that is we plan ahead. And so reserving your seat is not a lot of trouble. Take you about 20 seconds to do so. I promise you it'll bless you to do that um, so that we don't have mass chaos in one or two places. And so if you don't mind, that would be a blessing to us. And uh, I think it will bless you as well, okay? Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And we're going to look at what happened a couple thousand years ago on this weekend or this day we would refer to as Palm Sunday. And so let me pray for us, and then we're going to hop into the text. Y'all catch that? Hop into the text. Yeah, let's pray. Father, I thank you for humor, even though I don't have it. Um, Lord, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your provision in our lives. Lord, thank you for your son. And I pray, Lord, that we would see him in a way that fashions and forms our hearts. And and Lord, hopes... uh, Lord, that allows us to be transformed, renewed, encouraged. But Lord, also helps us to identify and see 
your son Jesus now uh, in a way that's helpful. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts the good news of your story of redemption. Um, Lord, help us to see why so many in that day missed it. And Lord, help us to not miss it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Luke chapter 19, you have this account that begins in verse 28. And it says this, And when he had said these things, and when it says, And he had said these things, it's talking about Jesus here. And Jesus had just given a parable um, to his disciples and followers. And then he begins to resolve himself. And he says that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, when he says this, we're going to see here in just a second in verse 29 that he's on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is east of the city of Jerusalem. And it's, uh, it's up on a hill and in between there is the Kidron Valley. And Jesus is there and he's resolved himself to descend to the city. But what's interesting is, is that in verse 28, Luke writes that he's going up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason that he writes going up to Jerusalem as opposed to descend upon the city of Jerusalem is because even though Jesus is going to go down the Mount of, of Olives, ultimately this is a very high calling, one that's onward and upward. It is Jesus resolving himself to do what he was accomplished and purposed to do from the very moment he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, and that was to resolve himself to Jerusalem. Now, we know that Jesus has had a ministry of three years, and there have been many moments where his disciples thought that he could have been killed, or uh, certainly things could have transpired. But Jesus, being the king of all that there is, had great authority, and he knew that this, this time had come. Now, when you see this idea here of the Passover, uh, not only the Passover, but on Palm Sunday, when you see the idea of Palm Sunday, you need to know that every gospel account records this narrative. And so it's a very important thing that you would see. And when he goes up towards Jerusalem, he knows that his time is near. And when I say his time is near, he knows, Jesus, that is, that he is about to give his life up for the sin of man. Matter of fact, you can get the account of John in chapter 11 that you saw the Pharisees had given orders uh, to everyone around that if they were to find or see Jesus, to let them know so they could go and arrest him. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees were a high alert for this man. They uh, had heard of Jesus, seen of Jesus, listened to Jesus, and they wanted him arrested. And ultimately, they wanted him tried for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And they didn't believe he was. And so here it is. He's going towards Jerusalem. Verse 29 says, And when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it here. And so here he is. He's in the area of Bethany, which also sits up on the eastern side. Uh, it's there near the Mount of Olives, on the Mount of Olives. And you know that it's east of the city. Now, what's interesting is, is I don't think that this is a coincidence that Jesus is entering the city from the east. Matter of fact, if we were to throw back uh, quite a few hundred years, you might remember Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet uh, for Israel. And uh, Ezekiel actually sat out on the eastern part of the city back when he witnessed the Shekinah glory of God depart from the temple in Ezekiel 10. 
Now, what's interesting about that is if you're wondering what the Shekinah glory of God was, the Shekinah glory of God was God's presence among the people of Israel. If you remember in the Exodus sojourn, as they came out of Egypt, God brought Moses along. Moses eventually uh, convinced Pharaoh to let his people go after a series of 10 plagues. He does. God brings them out past the Red Sea and leads them by a, a, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. That was the Shekinah glory of God. Eventually, the Shekinah glory of God would be housed in the most holy place in the tabernacle and then later in the, temp- uh, in, in, in the temple. And so you had the Shekinah glory. It was God's presence among his people. Well, Ezekiel in chapter 10 says the Shekinah glory departed. Because of Israel uh, and their rebellions and their stubborn, stiff-necked rebellion against God, God said, listen, I'm going to... I'm going to take away your land. I'm going to take away your blessing. And if there was one thing that, that really hurt Israel more than anything, it would be God's presence among his people. And so the presence of God departed. Now, quick question. How, how long was the presence of God gone from among Israel? Hundreds of years. When did it finally come back? When did the presence of God, the fulfillment of the Shekinah glory of God, reside among the people again? And I would say one starry night in Bethlehem. Hundreds of years, the people of Israel were absent. And then here it is, the Savior was born to us this day in the city of David. And the glory of God has now shone again among his people. Now, what's interesting is, is that as you see uh, Ezekiel see the Shekinah glory of God depart from the east, here it is, Jesus coming from the east to be a witness to his people about who he is. And it's a proclamation of what he had prophesied and ultimately not only what he would prophesy, but also what Zechariah would prophesy. And so when you look that Jesus draws near to the city from the Mount of Olives and he has the disciples go into the village where they would find a colt, he then says this in verse 31, if anyone asks you, hey, why are you untying the colt? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Hey, why are you untying the colt? And what was their response? The Lord has need of it. Now listen, we're familiar with passwords in this day and age, right? Um, Typically, it's like a couple of numbers from your birthday, something that you like, or your last name, or a part of your name. And then it's several symbols and asterisks and different stuff, right? Because you meet all the qualifications. Yes, And that's what we do time and time and time again. It was almost as if Jesus had prepared all of this in advance. And he goes, hey, when they ask you why you're taking it, just give them the password. And the password is the Lord has need of it. And that should be enough. And then it goes exactly as Jesus said that it would go. So he says, hey, I'm going to send two of you ahead. You're going to find this donkey. When you find it, they're going to ask you you why you're untying it. Just tell them the Lord has need of it. Do you see how... Jesus was encouraging his disciples because things would come to pass just as he said they would. Well, the question is, is what happens next? Verse 35 says, And they brought it to Jesus, that is the donkey, and then throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And so they take a handful of their cloaks and they pad uh, the donkey for, uh, as a saddle and they set Jesus on it. And you might ask the question, well, why is it that Jesus needed a donkey? Is it because he had been tired and weary and grown physically weak? And the answer is no. Jesus was in great physical shape. Jesus was a master carpenter. He was a man's man. He was not weak. He was not feeble. He was not tired. He could have easily made the couple mile walk from Bethany and the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem 
But the reason he loaded up on a donkey is because Zechariah, about 470 to 520 years earlier, depending on the dating, said that that would come to pass. And look what Zechariah the prophet wrote in, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah wrote 478 uh, or BC to 520 BC. So, you know, you do the math at 500 years before Jesus you have a man who is a prophet for Israel making a claim that the Messiah would come and you would see him riding on a donkey. So this isn't just the fulfillment of Jesus for the text. This is also a symbol and a sign for a nation who the glory of God had departed them for a large chunk of time. Matter of fact, we know from the scripture there were 400 years of silence. The people of Israel were longing and waiting and wondering, God, where are you? He finally shows up on the scene and they're struggling to recognize him. And so why is it that God gives us Jesus on a donkey? He gives us this for one reassurance of our faith, but more than that, he wanted the people of Israel to see clearly who he was. Now, here's why I encourage you in this, friends. Oftentimes, when we approach conversations with coworkers, with people who would say, you know what, I just don't believe there's a God. You might even be in this room. You say, I'm, I'm agnostic. I just, maybe there's a God out there, but I don't know that he's personal. I don't know that he cares about us. Maybe you'd even say, I'm atheistic, which would say, I just don't believe there's a God at all. Listen, here's what I want you to understand. As parents, as people of the faith, we do not have to approach every conversation with our kids or with a coworker or with a friend with the words, just have faith. And I think for a long time, decades upon dec decades, the church, almost illiterate in the word, has approached conversations with kids and with family members and friends just saying, I don't know, I don't have the answers, I just have faith. And can I just tell you that, that the Bible is a reliable book written over a period of 1,500 years on three different continents and three different languages by a series of 40-plus authors who didn't even know each other. And then they have this unity that transpires before us. And as we dive into it, we can see historically, archaeologically, um, and even biblically that there are so many prophecies that have been fulfilled that it is impossible to negate the fact that Jesus was not only historical, but he was also reliable to the words he said. And you do not have to substantiate your faith just by the mere claims of you and I should have some faith. But you could have real tangible arguments and conversations. When I say arguments, I don't mean like heated debates. I mean reliable, factual conversations that help people see who Jesus was. And listen, when I think about Jesus and I think about what's happening here, I think about this particular prophecy and I would list it probably not even in the top 50. Like it doesn't even make my top 50 list in terms of the reliability of who Jesus was and the reliability of him being the savior of the world. Now, why do I say that? To say that God was in the business of giving us true, legitimate things 
that proved the reliability and the accuracy of what was transpiring here in this text. And it should substantiate and qualify our faith in ways that give us purpose and meaning even when we doubt, when we despair, or when we find ourselves in hopelessness. We don't go back near to feelings, but to text, to textual criticism, and to be able to see that there is reliability in the Word of God, even things like this. Hope that helps. But here it is in verse Picking up in verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So here it is, Jesus loads up on the donkey. Um, They are descending from the Mount of Olives. As they uh, go, they are spreading out their cloaks. So they had put a few cloaks up on Jesus to give him a comfortable ride. And now they're they're moving their cloaks before him. And they they are seeing him as a divine king and as a means of making him known to others who would have been there watching and on looking. They, the 12, are making sure they realize his divinity, that he is divine. The 12 recognize it, and so they're honoring him in a special way. And as they do that, they're, they're giving symbols as to uh, what kingship would look like in some ways. The difference is is that Jesus didn't come to be an earthly king. Matter of fact, let's look and see what transpires. Verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that uh, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, we're going to camp out here for just a few moments. If you've got a pen, you can make a couple of notes. Now, here's what's happening. As they go down the Mount of Olives, as the crowd, the onlookers, and, and even um, his disciples are there, they begin to sing. And, and what are they singing? They're singing a Jewish hallel. A Jewish hallel, uh, hallel literally means praise. That's what it means. And they would use these Jewish hallels from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 as songs of praise. And the way they would do that on certain holidays, they would wake up in the morning and they might have a service as their custom was. And they would use these Jewish hallels to bring about forth praise and honor to God. Now what's interesting is, is also when you see Jesus on the Passover, uh, he gathers with his disciples. They're going to have what's a Jewish traditional meal on the Passover. It's called a Passover Seder. And during the Passover Seder, they're also going to use these Jewish Hallels. And they're going to recite them as a liturgical part of their dinner as they recognize who God was and bringing them out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And so here, what the disciples do is they quote Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so they are saying these words. Now, the other gospel accounts use the word Hosanna as well. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Luke omits that. And probably most likely commentators would think that, they, that Luke missed uh, or, or just omitted on purpose because he had a Greek audience he was writing to. They wouldn't have probably understood that. And so what they do understand, though, is the declaration that comes from the disciples. They lay cloaks out. They go, hey, he is special. We recognize him. 
there is a blessing. And, and then they say, and he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord as they recite this Jewish Hallel. But look what also happens. They say, and there is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, what's interesting is around the birth of Jesus, there was a something, a declaration in Luke 2 that was similar to that. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the declaration was, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men whom, with whom he is pleased. But I want you to catch the difference. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, when Jesus arrived on the scene, it was what? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men. What is the difference here in verse 38. Let's look at it in verse 38. Peace in what? Heaven. heaven. See the difference? Peace in heaven. So what is Jesus trying to communicate as he rides this donkey? He was trying to communicate to a known world where ancient kings would communicate something similar. So in the known world, when an ancient king came into a city, he would come riding an animal. But the animal would have been a horse. And when he came, they would have sang songs to praise him. And they would have made a big deal about him coming into the city because they would have recognized his class and his status, that he was a warrior. Interesting, we have historical evidence and writings even from the time of Alexander the Great when he rode into Jerusalem. And you know, it was also customary as when these kings came into a city, they would not only um, be revered and respected riding on a, with an entourage on a really big horse, then they would go to the temple and they, they would make sacrifices to the gods of the people. And that's what you would see. But Jesus says, I'm going to do it differently. Now, how did Jesus do it? Jesus came humbly riding on a donkey. Why a donkey? Because that's what a merchant or someone from a different place, or even a priest would rode. And the reason why is because it was emblematic of a person of peace, not a person of war. And so when Jesus comes, descending from the Mount of Olives, as they proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, and other manuscripts, when they say here, hey, peace, on, peace, peace in heaven, Glory to God in the highest. When they declare that he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they're actually saying he is the man who brings peace. And when he comes riding on the foal of a donkey, it upsets the people who are watching. Matter of fact, look at verse 39, who's agitated by this. The Pharisees. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? Because as they come from Bethany and the Mount of Olives, as they declare that he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that he's bringing peace in heaven and glory in the highest, it agitates these leaders because they believe that that is reserved as a Jewish Hallel only for God. They do not recognize Jesus as God, and they believe that he is a liar, a blasphemer, and a madman. They do not believe he's the Messiah. And so he, they, they believe that the disciples should be re, rebuked for such um, a praise. But look at Jesus' response, what he says himself. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to shut them up, that's fine. But he goes, you need to know my authority under heaven and earth, that even the rocks, the stones... 
We see other accounts in the Psalms that trees would cry out, that God can use creation to subject it to praise for the God of creation. And that's his point. He goes, I'm coming, coming, and he's coming humbly on a donkey. He is showing that he is the Prince of Peace, and he is showing Israel that if they don't worship, then he'll come up with a different plan. And in verse 41, you see Jesus' response. After he has said these words to the Pharisees, he drew near and he saw the city and he wept over it. When you see the word wept there, you would see it in the Greek and it would literally mean to well. It wouldn't mean just a tear. It would, mean, it would be a symbol of he welled in agony and in despair with grief and sorrow in his heart. Jesus was saddened. And you might ask the question, well, why was he saddened? Why was it that, that Jesus was, was struggling in this moment? And here's why. Catch this. Lean in with me. Because Jesus looked over a city called Jerusalem, the city of peace. And he's brought to tears because he knows that in the city, covered with Roman control, that the people of Israel, though they inhabit the city and they are Israelites, they have missed the Messiah and there is no peace in the city. Not only is there no physical peace because Rome is in charge, there is no spiritual peace because the people are missing the Prince of Peace. And so Jesus is grieved in his heart with agony. He sheds tears over a city who has not seen the Messiah of the world. So Jesus has come to save people from their sins. Matter of fact, in this same chapter, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus tells us that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as he comes to seek and save that which is lost, he knows who is lost. He knows that the people of Israel have missed it. And he knows that in their capital city, there are not only religious leaders, but there are people that have not experienced the peace of God. And it grieves his heart. Now, there are some manuscripts in the early copies that scribes left this out, that Jesus wept. And the reason why is because they believe that it exemplified weakness and that if Jesus was perfect, then he would not have wept over the city. But I actually, I and I would say thousands of people that are way smarter than me would say that's a problem. The reason why is because Jesus did identify with us in our weakness. Jesus did understand despair. Jesus did understand agony. Obviously, there were sweat blood, blood uh, uh, drops that came from his head in the Garden of Gethsemane just a handful of days later. Why? Because he understood what we have experienced, and even more. And so here it is, in despair, he weeps over a city because he believes that the city of peace should have experienced the peace that God had to offer, and they've missed it. But then, because of all that's happening, look what he says to them. And saying this... Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So you have these Jewish leaders, these Pharisees who say, hey, do not give him the praise of God. Jesus weeps over the city and then he tells them, hey, if you would have known what made peace, you would have seen it. But he says, now it's hidden from your eyes. So Jesus says, listen, you are in the 11th hour. You are in an hour in which you are about to miss all that God has brought to this moment. That from uh, the Shekinah glory departing hundreds of years earlier, God has brought forth a savior in the city of David, one who is proclaimed that will eventually sit on the Davidic throne. He is the savior. He came as a person of peace. You didn't recognize him because you wanted a king. 
You wanted someone who was going to overthrow Rome riding on a white horse that you could rejoice and, and, and throw palm leaves after and that you could say, hey, he's emblematic of our nation and we're going to be in charge. And Jesus said, I'm not coming that way. And so he rides in on a donkey, unsuspecting, humble as a prince of peace, saying, if you want real peace, it's not found in being a Jew. It's not being found in living in a city. It's found in a savior. And if you recognize him high and lifted up, he is the one willing to take on your agony and your grief. He was willing to be stripped naked, his beard plucked, despised, rejected, hurled insults at. He was willing to be tried six times, though innocent every time he hung on a cross. And he says, and if you'll look to me, he goes, even the worst of thieves can find peace. And that's the proclamation that Jesus is making. That's his desire here. But he says, you'll miss it, and it's hidden from you. The eyes of the Jews were not open. And isn't it sad? That goes right along with Romans chapter 9 and 10 that we've been reading as a church. Jesus says, I'm setting you aside because you've missed the proclamation of what a real king looks like. And then Jesus does something here. He foretells what's going to happen to the city of peace, Jerusalem. He tells what's going to happen at the hands of Rome. And so look at verse 43 and 44. It is, it is a prophecy that comes to fruition. 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And within about 35 years of Jesus saying these words on the Mount of Olives as he descends into the city, this same thing comes to fruition. The city is destroyed uh, at the hands of Rome in AD 70. But what's interesting, you remember me talking about reliability and factual evidence? Look at the words of a guy named Flavius Josephus. I'm going to put them for you up the screen. He wrote this in a manuscript called War of the Jews. These are his words, historically evident research that is not only reliable and true, but also really depicts the words of Jesus that he shared three to four decades before. Look what Flavius Josephus says about the city of peace. All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of dead bodies of the aged the children also. And the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with fam the famine. And they fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had then them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. And when Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrif, cashin, running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God, to witness that it was not of his doing. The city was destroyed. And the Jews no longer had a land, no longer had a people, and no longer experienced the peace and the kindness of God. And if you know historical evidence, the people of Israel would be without a land, really, for the next 1,900 years. It wasn't until 1948 that the Jews were allowed to inhabit their land as Israel being declared their sovereign place. But for a long, long period of time after Jesus said these words, 
On Palm Sunday, the people of Israel were wandering aimlessly. And I would say even today, you might find more Jews in upstate New York than you would find in the promised land. They all haven't come home. Why? Because Jesus told us that was going to happen. Paul said that as well in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. But look what happens next. You remember what kings did? They came in, they were held to be great, riding a white horse. Then they would go to where? The temple? Where did Jesus go? This was the next day. This would have been on a Monday. So you had Sunday, Palm Sunday. He's declared to be who he is, the Prince of Peace. On Monday, he goes to the temple, verse 45. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He goes, I'm not making a sacrifice. I am the sacrifice. But what you've done to make a mockery of my father's house is a problem. And so he cleanses the temple just days before his death. Verse 47, And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so here it is, this incredible text that you see Jesus descend upon a city he desires to save with agony and grief in his heart. There are many that would reject him, although there are some hanging on his words. Now, what's interesting is, is Luke doesn't give you the account of what happens next, but which would have been on a Tuesday. You see an account in Mark chapter 11, and you also get an account from Matthew chapter 21 of what Jesus does next. And this would have been on a Tuesday, but look what happens on Tuesday. In Matthew 21, 18 to 19, you can make you a note. You can, co- you can go there real quick. You can see this again, like I said, in Mark chapter 11. As you're turning there, I want to show you what's next and, and why it matters. Matthew 21, verse 18, it says, And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, okay, so he'd, he'd, he'd been staying, and you see customary that he's staying at the Mount of Olives in the area of Bethany. That's where he is during Passion Week. He descends upon the city, and he became hungry. Verse 19, And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And then he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now you wonder, well, why in the world would Jesus curse a fig tree? It has leaves on it. It seems to be alive, but it's not bearing fruit. Now, I would say and suggest that a lot of commentators would agree that this fig tree was emblematic, too, of the people of Israel. It's a representation of the nation. And so what does Jesus do? He goes, look, you look to be alive. You look like you got it all together, but you're not bearing fruit. And he curses the fig tree, which is a symbol of the nation of Israel in that day and time. And he says, and may you never bear fruit again. I believe that he's talking specifically about a generation of Jews there that reject the Messiah. And why do they reject him? Because they're looking for a conquering king. And instead you have a humble servant willing to make peace with men. Catch this, outside of the city. Jesus had entered Jerusalem as he's trying to make peace with men. Why? Because he goes, you're not going to find the city of peace. You find it outside of the city of peace. As a matter of fact, you know where Jesus was crucified? Was he crucified in the city? No, he was crucified where? Outside of the city. Why? Because it shows us of God's grand plan that you will meet him outside of the holy place. Jesus, now sitting at the right hand of God, 
Did he descend upon this place in order that we might know him? Yes. Friends, you don't want to meet God then in the city of Zion. You want to meet him now while there's still a chance. Why? Because Revelation chapter 19 tells us what Jesus will look like next time we see him. How will Jesus come next time we see him? Will he be on a horse? Yes, a white one. Will he be a king? Will people recognize that and have plenty to say about it? Yes. And then what happens next? Does he offer peace? No. He offers justice, vengeance, and wrath for sin. And here's the point of Palm Sunday, friends. You can meet Jesus as a person of peace, or if you so choose to deny him, to hide your eyes from him, or even boast in our own arrogance to say there's not a God and there's no one who could save us, then you'll meet him in wrath. You get to see Jesus in one of two ways. He's either the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah who in his wrath devours sin. Which way do you want to see him? Jesus said to his friends in Jerusalem, Oh, I desire that you would see me. But they veiled their eyes and they hid their faces. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, he goes, oh, that my brothers and sisters would know the glory of God. They know of his glory. They know of the law. They've heard the prophets. They know of the warnings. They know of what they've seen. But they've rejected it. Can it be true that we would reject truth even though it's right before our eyes? Yes. Which is why we need to tell people about the Prince of Peace. It just reminds us, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Friends, what are we to do? We're to be people of peace. We are to be emblematic and to also be a symbol of what is to come. We are to be people who point others to our Savior. Why? Because we would desire that they meet Him now as opposed to meet Him later. You meet Him later, it's too late. You meet him as you stand before him. It's going to be a problem. And so let's meet him now. And let's encourage others to meet him now as the prince of peace, the humble king, the one riding on a donkey, the one who only thing he desired to conquer that week was sin, death, and the grave. And we're so thankful he did it, aren't we? Lord, may you help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we would just remind ourselves of your sovereign grace and power. Lord, you did nothing by accident in your son's life. We thank you that he subjected himself to the authority of God, that he was one with you, and he did as his father said. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that we don't only have biblical evidence, but we have historical evidence archaeological evidence of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we do have to come to grips with who he was. Was he just a lunatic? Was he some madman, crazed, proclaiming to others that he was God? Was he a liar, didn't make all this up to dupe a bunch of people? Or was he Lord? And Lord, from the text and from the things that we've seen and known and studied, Lord, we believe that your son, Jesus, was Lord. And because of that, we proclaim that he is the Prince of Peace. We believe that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as we sing and as we share with others, I pray that we would show people 
who he is and how to meet him now. Thank you for the eternal hope and promise that the cross brings. Though as we look at it, it certainly is a symbol of darkness. It can seem like a symbol of separation. Lord, we thank you that in that darkness and in that separation, it was Jesus overcoming sin, death, and the grave so that we may have life and have it to the full, not just here on earth, but eternally. What an incredible promise. And I pray it would prepare our hearts for Easter weekend. In Jesus' name.